this certainly doesn't make that situation any better. Um, I think the reality is, is that we're, we're going to have to accept um, slower growth this year, and it's unlikely that the government's going to be able to, to do too much to really speed up the economy throughout the rest of 2022 because they have to be mindful of the fact that there are these risks in the system. And so um, I, I think from the standpoint of you know, hitting these aggressive GDP targets that we, we used to have you know, prior to the lockdowns, um, it, it doesn't look very good. But I think they're probably going to be willing to accept slower growth in the name of sort of keeping things stable and, and hoping to kind of improve the situation going into 2023. Thanks, Ben, very much. That's Ben Cavender, Managing Director of the China Market Research Group up in Shanghai. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take another look around Asia-Pacific stock markets. In Australia, the SX200 up 0.1%. Uh, the Nikkei 225 uh, cutting back some of its losses. It's down about a third of a percent at the moment. Cosby in South Korea moving in the other direction, up 0.4%. And it looks like the Hang Seng is going to open about 150 points lower in just under an hour's time. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Coming up after the news, back chat with Janice Wong and Mike Rouse. The weather forecast, fine and very hot. Maximum temperature about 36 degrees in urban areas, a couple of degrees higher in the new territories. And the outlook is for it to be persistently very hot and fine for the rest of July. The very hot weather warning is in force. It's 31 degrees right now, 78% relative humidity. Time's coming up to 8.32. Here's Andy Shrosky with the Half Hour News. Thank you, Peter. Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, who's begun a diplomatic offensive in Africa, has dismissed claims that Moscow is to blame for the global food crisis. In a speech to Arab League ambassadors in Cairo, he accused Western nations of trying to impose their dominance over other countries. The aggressiveness with which the West addressed this situation, both from the point of view of physical sanctions, from the point of view of the hate speech indicates one very simple conclusion. It is not about Ukraine. It is about the future of the world order. Many African countries are reliant on Ukrainian grain supplies. Some are facing food shortages. The authorities in the Bahamas say 17 people have drowned after a vessel carrying migrants capsized. The police said the boat turned over 11 kilometers off the island of New Providence. More than 20 people were rescued. The police commissioner of the Bahamas, Clayton Fernandez, said one woman had been found alive inside the overturned boat. The officers heard a knocking uh, to the hull of the boat, the divers eventually went down, and that's where they recovered the bodies, the 17 bodies. There was one female uh, who was still alive, was up in the air pocket of that, uh, the hull of that boat. So I believe that that's what kept her alive. The latest module of the nation's space station has successfully docked with the main unit 13 hours after the rocket carrying it blasted off from Hainan province. The Wenqian lab will be mostly used for scientific experiments, but will also provide backup life support and control functions for the Tiangong space station. The taikonauts aboard the station are expected to enter the new module later. Hong Kong's sizzling weekend of very hot weather continued yesterday with the SAR recording its third hottest day since records began in 1884. Joanne Wong has details.
The observatory said the thermometer reading at its headquarters went as high as 36.1 degrees Celsius in the afternoon, making it the hottest ever July day. Shangshui saw its mercury level shooting up to 39 degrees, and people in most places in Hong Kong sweltered in temperatures over 35 degrees. Meanwhile, a 60-year-old man died after falling unconscious during a hike at Lantau Island's West Docks Tees. He was declared dead at the scene. It follows the death on Saturday of a man during a hike at Sharps Peak in Saikung. He's thought to have suffered heat stroke and was declared dead after being airlifted to hospital. The observatory reminded the public to avoid being under the sun for too long, stay hydrated and beware of heat stroke. That's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and my co-host today is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Janice. On today's Back Chat, we're talking about COVID-19 rule adjustments in Hong Kong. Starting from next Monday, elderly care home visitors will be required to take a PCR test and provide negative test results within 48 hours of their planned visit. While starting from Wednesday, care home staff will have to undergo PCR tests every week instead of every fortnight. This comes as Hong Kong looks at further boosting COVID-19 vaccine uptake among the elderly. Meanwhile, residents infected with Omicron subvariant no longer have to face mandatory isolation at community facilities. COVID-19 patients and their close contacts will be allowed to undergo home quarantine, as long as they are not living together with people from high-risk groups and have a suitable living environment. After 9.15am, we'll look at calls for a citywide ban on the feeding of wild pigeons. Let us know your thoughts your questions and your comments on our Facebook page, Backchat at RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or you can call us, of course, and our number is 233-88266. Now to kick off our discussion, we have with us in the studio Benjamin Cowling, the head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health. And also on the line, we have Stephanie Law an executive committee member of the Elderly Services Association of Hong Kong. Good morning to the both of you. Good morning. Good morning. morning. And uh, thanks for joining us on the programme. Let's start with you, Mrs. Law. Um, What do you think of the new PCR test requirements for elderly care home staff and its visitors? Um, First of all, we think it is a good measure in terms of public health safety and safeguarding elders at care homes. So observing the total number of COVID cases, which has reached uh, 4,000 per day, uh, it is understandable that the government's screening policy is to track down hidden COVID cases uh, for care home visitors. Um, but uh, since elders are restricted from going out generally, uh, what we believe is uh, COVID is likely to be transmitted from the community into care homes, meaning both visitors and care home staff could be the source of COVID transmission. Um, so, uh, so now the new policy, uh, let me uh, briefly explain it. Uh, for the current scissors arrangement, uh, scissors are required for two doses of vaccination and presenting negative results on rapid antigen test upon visiting. Uh, each visitor is granted 45 minutes of visit at a designated area in the care home. But for the new scissors arrangement, um, they are required to have three doses of vaccination, which is also equivalent to the government's vaccine po- uh, pass policy. So uh, rapid test is no longer sufficient, and visitors would need to go to the community test- testing centers 
48 hours prior to visiting time and uh, obtain negative results. If the visitor can provide proof on the elderly home visit, he or she may get the testing fee rate. Um, we think that uh, there are also flexibility given because some of the appointments uh, made uh, two weeks prior to booking can still use the old way. Only the new appointments uh, uh, next week will have to comply with the new regulation. Right. And so far, what's been the response of uh, visitors to these measures? Have you uh, spoken to any of them? Um, yes. Um, actually, uh, the the uh, families, they, they are welcome for this uh, policy because it is much better than a strict no-visitor policy. Um, so, and also, various studies have shown that, you know, banning visitors or no-visitor measure had substantial impact on the health of residents. So family, actually, they uh, understand that the cases are rising in the community and they are willing to uh, comply with the regulation. And some of these visitors, they are um, elderly people themselves, right? Would it be uh, asking them for, for I mean, to, to be um, doing too much, I mean, to get a PCR test before they actually uh, visit uh, elderly people in the care home? Because right now, a lot of the uh, public places are also under the government's vaccine pass policy. So a lot of them have already complied with the three vac- uh, three doses of vaccination. And also they have been, you know, uh, in the past few months uh, on a, a appointment basis to come to a care home and they have to take the rapid test every time they come. So this is, you know, an addition, uh, uh, you know, uh, a measure for, for them as well to come into the homes um, because uh, of their community cases are rising also. So they're welcome of this policy. So, um, Professor, Professor Cowling, uh, Mrs. Law just now, she says it's a good measure. Um, exactly how effective do you think this uh, PCR test requirement uh, will be in uh, protecting uh, care home residents from uh, COVID-19? I think the rapid test rule was already a very good rule because we know that rapid tests are highly correlated with contagiousness. So I, I think the visitors as well are, are not the people that most often bring infections into the care home. It's actually the staff, unfortunately. So I prefer to see staff testing more frequently. Um, I'm not sure the vaccine pass makes a lot of difference whether vac- whether the, the visitors are comply with the vaccine pass or not. So a, a number of the new elements of the rules I'm, I'm not sure are really necessary. But at the same time, I'm glad that they are allowing visitors because in the past, they have not allowed visitors. So now care home staff, um, they will be uh, tested every week instead of every fortnight. Is that uh, regular enough? Oh, no, I, I would prefer to see them being tested every day at the entrance to the home with a rapid test. I mean, I think we, we could do more with rapid tests, particularly with directly observed rapid tests. So that's not the test where you do it at home and when you come, you say, oh, I did it and it was negative. At the door of the elderly home, the person's at the counter, you do the rapid test there and then, and it comes up negative, everyone sees it, and then you can go in. I think that would be a safer way to do things. Uh, ben, good morning. The, the steam seems to have run out of our vaccination drive. Yeah. Um, we're having a, a matter of a few hundred a day. I think yesterday was 300 and something. Saturday was better than that, 800 and something. But that's still very, very low. And even if they were all elderly, and of course they're not, mm. um, it would still take a very long time uh, to get the va- vaccination for the very elderly up, up to the levels we need. Well, is, it, I, is it time to make vaccination <laughs> mandatory? <laughs> I think that the coverage in general in Hong Kong is very high. In older adults, it's not so high. I think we're above 70% now. There are some older people who really are against vaccination. And unless it was mandatory, I don't think they would get vaccinated. Um, I think we can look at both sides of the argument for making it mandatory. On one hand, it would 
Uh, if we make it mandatory, we would get the coverage even to a higher level, and that would make Hong Kong as a whole safer. But on the other hand, there's issues, ethical issues with informed consent that I've talked about before with, with forcing people to get vaccinated if they don't want to. And I'm personally not that keen on, on, on mandates or forced vaccination. But there, sometimes that there can be a justification for that to happen. What I would say is if we were to relax that some of the public health measures in Hong Kong now with the vaccine coverage we have, what do we think would happen? I don't think we'd have an enormous surge in, in severe cases. I think COVID is spreading anyway as we, as we are now. The case numbers are coming up every day. There's a lot of people in hospital with COVID, but there's not so many people in hospital because of COVID. Actually, when we look at the statistics, there's only, I think, 300 something in isolation. There's almost a thousand or even more than a thousand people who are in hospital with a PCR positive, but that can be after they've recovered. Some of those people may be in hospital because COVID triggered something. Maybe it triggered another health condition. But uh, we, we can say for sure that at, at this point in time, with case numbers going up, and I don't think it's going to be too long until the case numbers peak, the hospitals can cope. Now, I, there's so many things in what you just said that I wanted to query. Singapore, I think, is rolling along now at about 10,000 new cases a day. And yet... We're, they seem to be re quite relaxed about it, and we're so. Oh, it was three thousand. Oh, now it's four thousand. This is this is disaster. What, why this difference in in attitude? I think Singapore have recognised that they can't stop it from spreading. So the best they can do is manage it and make sure that they're prepared to to deal with what happens as a consequence of COVID in the community, because they've got very high vaccine coverage, higher than us. Really, most infections are very, very mild. Nothing to worry about. They do have an issue in hospitals like we do when there's a lot of people in hospital with mild COVID, but in hospital for other reasons like surgeries or whatever. The infection control teams have a lot of work to do because you can't have one surgical patient with, a, with COVID transmitting to the other surgical patients who didn't. But it's not good if everyone gets COVID in the hospital, right? Because there's a lot of vulnerable people there. So that's one particular issue we have to be careful of. So even if most infections are mild, we can still have issues in the hospitals. But in general, you can see Singapore are managing fine. And I think other parts of the world are mostly doing OK at the moment, even with lots of COVID about. The hospitals, the infection control teams have problems because of the sheer number of cases, even with mild symptoms who are in hospital. But otherwise, the community is doing fine. Uh, Mrs. Law, uh, are you, how does the association feel about mandatory vaccination? Uh, for for the elders, right? Um, yes. Because for the elders um, already, uh, for new residents, uh, they will have to comply with the COVID pass as well. So um, at least they would need uh, uh, three uh, vaccinations before um, you know uh, getting into the care homes. Um, so so now actually uh, the uh, vaccination rate of care homes has already risen. For the first dose, it's around ninety percent, and second dose um, for eighty percent, and the third dose is around thirty percent. So we're getting there. Yes. Um, yes. And a lot of the elders, because they have, uh, you know, contracted COVID during the fifth wave. Uh, so a lot of them are actually waiting for the time to come uh, when they can uh, get right. the, those uh, vaccinated. They've got to wait for the six months. Yes. Yes. All right, Mr. Law, um, from today, I know uh, government outreach teams will uh, be visiting nursing homes at least once a week to help uh, vaccinate elderly and disabled people against COVID-19. Um, in your view, what more can be done to uh, boost inoculation rate among the elderly population? I mean, have um, you been briefed on, on this uh, government's plan yet? Could Tony Chen tell um, us a bit more? Yes. Um, yes, we think, uh, you know, vaccination is definitely one of the major uh, 
protective barriers for the elders at the care home. And also, uh, one of the suggestions is that uh, because occasionally um, elders are, you know, admitted into the hospitals and they are coming back from the hospital, but right now we only have uh, rapid, uh, you know, antigen test results for negative, and then they can come back. So we we thought we th- we think that it would be, you know, helpful if some, uh, you know, PCR tests could be done, uh, you know, prior to their uh, uh, discharging from the hospital. Right. But, but how can you um, boost the vaccination rate among uh, elderly uh, residents at care homes? Um, right now, actually, the, the communication between um, the families, um, the doctors and the elders, um, they are very transparent about, you know, the, the, the benefits and effects of the vaccination. So uh, many of the uh, uh, families and elders have turned, uh, you know, their their um, attitudes from, you know, a uh, quite a conservative um, um, uh, and into a more proactive um, uh, attitude. Uh, so we are seeing uh, most of you know the, the elders are, are complying or willing to take the vaccination these days. Right, and uh, you are in frequent contact with uh, many many elderly people and their family. Um, what do you think will be useful to help persuade elderly people to uh, get vaccinated? Um. Because um, right now uh, there is a, a schedule that uh, the, the doctors and the authorities hold, so they know that uh, each uh, resident, uh, it's time for them to have the next vaccination. So it is uh, more like a new normal now that uh, you know vaccinations are uh, available, um, and um, any time if they have questions, we are able to. Um, you know, address that to the um, elders and the families as well. So we think um, this measure has helped to bridge the communications um, and uh, clarify any, uh, you know, concerns about the vaccination effects. And uh, earlier, Professor Cowling is saying that uh, it would be useful if uh, staff at uh, these elderly care homes could be, uh, could uh, maybe uh, get a PCR test uh, more regularly than uh, just one week. Do you think that would be possible? Uh, PCR test for care home workers. Right now, right now, yeah, right now, care home workers they have to uh, um, get a weekly PCR test. Um, would it be possible to to do even more frequently? Um, right now, actually, the current measure uh, since the end of February is that uh, all staff have to carry out rapid antigen tests with negative results before work every day. So they have to send out the negative results uh, every morning before they come to work. And I think um, this is, uh, you know, um, this is an additional protective barrier for the entire care home community. Uh, however, one worry from our staff is that there are risks when they go out to the community testing center, which they may get exposed to, you know, COVID during the test. So alternatively, we think that uh, third-party PCR tests may be carried in the home without going out uh, or via the use of, you know, specimen bottle being picked up by the authorities. Um, also, uh, bear in mind that uh, the test may take uh, one day or, or so to release the results. So there are reasons, you know, for PCR and rapid tests to go on in parallel um, if uh, we're determined to screen out uh, COVID-positive care staff. Um, we also think that the government should uh, continuously monitor the numbers um, and when the community COVID numbers go down, um, they can uh, consider relieving this measure because um, it is creating a large volume of, uh, you know, administrative work and inconvenience of staff. So we prefer less contact of staff with the community. So refraining from going to the testing centres is one of them. Uh, You've talked about the improvements in the vaccination rate 
it's among the elderly and explained how this has come about by a, a variety of ways. But at the end of the day, all of us in Hong Kong are subject to social restrictions and there's still 120,000 unvaccinated elderly. Is, is, this, uh, is, is it time for more f firm measures to relieve the rest of the community? Um, on the care home perspective, uh, because uh, there are studies showing that, you know, um, living in a uh, elderly home is already uh, a, a risk factor of, you know, exposing to COVID. So we think that this um, community, uh, it makes sense, you know, for, for, for them to have all the vaccinations uh, required and the protection um, because we also see that uh, since the fifth wave, um, you know, the, 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 the peak of fifth wave right now, you know, 100 uh, and so care homes have, uh, you know, uh, single digit um, uh, COVID cases uh, every, every, every week. Um, so that uh, we also think that, you know, this is uh, necessary. But for the larger community, I think um, this is uh, something to uh, take reference of uh, because um, elders at the care homes uh, they do have a higher risk, uh, you know, exposed to COVID. Ben, if you were a member of the committee, which sort of areas would you be looking at for uh, loosening up on social restrictions? Well, I think, first of all, you've got to, to, to think about what's the overall objectives for Hong Kong, because at the minute we haven't heard an explanation of what the overall plan is. Uh, we've heard that, that dynamic zero might not be zero, because in, in, in temperatures, absolute zero is different to zero Celsius, zero Fahrenheit. That's from the, the Minister for Health a couple of weeks ago in SCMP. But uh, apart from that, I mean, he, he was saying that he prefers the case numbers to be declining from day to day rather than increasing from day to day. But they have been increasing from day to day. And I suppose over time, half the time they'll be increasing and half the time they'll be decreasing. They will only be happy half the time. Uh, he won't be happy when the numbers are going up. But I, I, I don't know what the long term aim is. I mean, are we heading towards a reopening? What One thing I would say is I, I'm not aware of any other place in the world that's planning to reopen and to relax public health measures and then introduces new measures. But in Hong Kong, we've got quite a number of new things coming in. We've got the wristbands for people in isolation. We've got the health code changing to red and yellow and so on in the coming weeks. But, but not green. Not well, let's see. So I, I, I don't know. It, it, it seems like the trajectory is not towards relaxation and reopening in, in, in a way we're continuing with with uh, attempting to, to control COVID, but, but unfortunately failing to control COVID, but attempting to control it. But looking at this uh, new measure, allowing people with mild versions to quarantine at home, uh, if they got the couldn't that be extended to arriving, re returning Hong Kong residents? Well, there, there's two different things. So what, yes. what's been happening in Hong Kong so far in the community, if you get COVID and it's mild, as long as your home has two toilets, not one, as long as you have two toilets at home and, and there's no high-risk people, there's no elderly, no very young children, no pregnant women, I, I guess, no, no high-risk people in your home, you can isolate a home. But if you get BA4, BA5, BA2.1, you don't have that choice and, until just now. Uh, you have to go to Penny's Bay because they want to keep a tighter, uh, uh, tighter constraints on, on the, the new sub-variants. That's just changed. And now any Omicron subvariant, even the new ones, BA4, BA5, you can isolate at home if it's safe. Um, I, I wish there'd be a choice that even if you have other people in your family uh, who, who are high risk, I wish there was a choice about where you could isolate and an opportunity to isolate outside the home. 
but also a, a choice not to for various reasons. Um, so I, that new rule, I, I don't think will make, make much difference on control. But for the travel measures that you asked, mate, the travel measures, that's a different thing because the whole purpose of the travel restrictions, the, the small numbers of people that can travel, the quarantine hotels, the PCR negative before departure and so on, all of that is intended to keep new subvariants out of Hong Kong, like BA 2.12.1, BA4, BA5. It didn't do the job. The, the travel measures have not done the job they're supposed to be doing. Now there's BA 2.75 in some other parts of the world. It's only a matter of time before that gets into our community because I don't think the travel measures will be able to to stop it. But that's the rationale. So I don't see the, the chance for switching arriving cases who are positive on arrival being allowed to isolate a home because negative? that would defeat the objective of the whole thing. How about if they test negative on arrival at the airport? Well, I mean, I, what I would prefer to see is that the travel measures go because I don't think they're doing their job. I don't think they are, that they're stringent enough to keep new variants out of the community. And so if they're not, if they're not doing the job, why are we still having them? I, I mean, I think that what I would suggest is we change to a system where there's no further travel restrictions whatsoever. I don't see the point. I don't see that they're doing the job they're supposed to be doing. Right. Maybe we could uh, ask uh, Ivan Hung later, who is a government advisor, and see what he has to say about that. Um, let's go back to uh, elderly people again. Uh, uh, Professor Cowling, uh, you've heard what uh, Mrs. Law has to say. Um, what else do you think the government can do to help boost uh, the vaccination rate among the elderly population? Uh, well, in um, behavioural terms, we talk about carrots and sticks. You can either give people incentives or you can, you can penalise people who don't comply with, with what you want them to do. And in Hong Kong, in, in general, there's been a lot of sticks, not so many carrots. I mean, my suggestion would be to look at carrots. So there's a lot of ways we can incentivise older people to get vaccinated. Uh, the obvious one is money. And I think we, we spend a lot of money on, on the vaccine programme. We spend a lot of money going door to door at the moment with vaccination teams sending 10 or more people around door-to-door in estates looking for old people to vaccinate. Instead of that, why not just offer them, offer them cash incentive to come to a vaccination centre and get vaccinated? I think there'd be a queue outside the door. So I, I would prefer to see more use of carrots than sticks, actually. Mrs Law? Hello? Yes. What's your, what's your view on that? We're, not, we're talking about like the general um, elderly population in Hong Kong. Would that, would that work, do you think? I think, um, you know, the, the earlier wave uh, that uh, a lot of the elderly homes are, are slow in the progress. Um, also, um, the incentive uh, of having uh, doctors or, or, or uh, you know, uh, people to come um, to uh, get the vaccinations for elders that are not um, convenient to go to the testing, testing centers, that is, uh, that is one. And, and the other, you know, um, advice uh, by Professor uh, on, you know, on cash or, or I think uh, different uh, sorts of uh, incentives for the, the community would definitely uh, help to, you know, um, encourage the elders to get the vaccination. But it seems a little strange, isn't it? You, we what this system here designed to help you live longer and, and not get sick. And, and now we feel we've got to pay you uh, to do that. That's well, I think we're, we're, the reason we're paying is because that's still the cheapest way to get the vaccine coverage to the high level that we'd like for public health reasons. That if we're investing billions probably in the vaccine program um, and, and at the minute to do home door to door vaccination for, I don't know, you know, one team can do 20, 30 people a day. Why not invest that money instead into another way of getting the vaccine coverage up to the high level, which might involve incentivizing through, through financial incentives? Well, we have a program of vaccinating all babies. 
mm. against a number of illnesses. Mm. We, we don't ask the babies. We don't need to. The, the, the parents are willing to vaccinate the babies for these serious diseases like measles and so on. So I think it, that, that there is a, a bigger issue in Hong Kong that we, we still have a plan, uh, in theory at least, to control COVID. And in that sense, the risk to elderly is, is, is not always easy to, to correctly perceive. Um, and so that there's a lot of other underlying issues in terms of the vaccine hesitancy. But uh, given the amount of money that's invested in the vaccine program and given the aims are to get the vaccine coverage in elderly as high as possible, particularly, I think we've got to look at every every different angle to get that coverage to a high level, not only sticks, but also carrots. All right. Just very, very briefly, uh, Mrs. Law, uh, what do you think is the main reason why many elderly people uh, do, don't want to be vaccinated? Um at first, you know, uh, when before the fifth wave, uh, there was a low vaccination rate among elders, and then the, the uh, you know there's a, a high um, mortality rate, you know, um, associated with uh, COVID. It, it was after that, you know, that uh, the the public uh, was more aware of the importance of uh, the vaccination. But before it, a lot of you know misunderstanding and. Um, reluctance uh, was due to the different, you know, uh, um, media, you know, um, po- uh, you know, on, on the uh, articles or, or news about the associated health risks uh, associated with the, the COVID um, vaccines. But, All right. But so, so, so now everything is uh, is more clear. Basically, it's been made more mm-hmm. clear to the elderly. All right, Mrs. Law, we have to take a short break for the news. Thanks again for joining us this morning. And uh, Professor Cowling, we will continue with our discussion in a moment when we will be joined by government pandemic advisor Ivan Hung. And uh, Mrs. Law, thanks again for joining us this morning. And that's uh, Stephanie Law, an executive committee member of the Elderly Services Association. And a quick look at the weather. It'll be fine and very hot. The maximum temperature will be about. Uh, 36 degrees in the urban areas. The very hot weather warning is in force right now. It's 31 degrees, relative humidity 79%. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Monday morning with Mike Rouse and me, Janice Wong. In the first half of the program, we talked about the new um, PCR test requirement for elderly care home staff and visitors and the government's plan to boost the inoculation rate of elderly people against COVID-19. Remember, if you want to ask questions or share your view, you can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or you can give us a call on 233-88266. Still with us on the program is Professor Benjamin Cowling, the head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health. And uh, joining us in a moment will be a government pandemic advisor, Ivan Hong. And uh, before the news, we were talking about uh, ways to uh, help boost the vaccination rates of elderly uh, people. Um, Professor Cowling, do you have anything to add on, on, on that issue? No, I'll just repeat what, what I said before the break, that I think we, we've got carrots and sticks. And in Hong Kong, we've mostly been using sticks, not enough carrots, in my opinion, uh, given the amount of money invested in the vaccine program, given the cost of, of managing older people in in particularly in hospital, if they get severe COVID, I, mean, I think there's a strong justification to use financial carrots as well as, as uh, to, to boost uptake in elderly. When Ben, when do you think we're ever going to get rid of masks? Uh, that that's one of the the the, 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 the longest-lasting measures I would imagine in Hong Kong, partly because it's it's the least disruptive to the community in general compared to measures in restaurants, measures in schools, measures in workplaces, etc. 
Um, so it's an easy thing, that, that an easy an easy measure to sustain. But if you, go, if you look at the rest of the world, most places have switched to, to voluntary masking. There's debates in the US at the minute about whether to bring mandatory masking back in public transport in some cities, but I'm, I'm not sure if they will. Uh, they're thinking about it. Could we, could we allow uh, no mask or masks optional outdoors? Well, that's what I would like to see. I would certainly like to see the, the, the rules change to, to recommendations rather than requirements and let people make up their own minds based on their, their level of risk and their level of, of concern about COVID and so on. And outdoors, we know there's minimal transmission. So it really doesn't, doesn't require masking outdoors. I don't think it's making much difference to, to, the, to the daily case numbers either. And uh, the government, uh, I mean, it looks like, I mean, there have been reports that the government uh, will be introducing the health, ho- uh, health code, the color health code uh, very soon, maybe early August. Uh, what do you think of that, Professor Cowling? I think that the, the plan that we've heard about so far is, is two things. A red code for people who have COVID, in addition to the wristband, I think. So there's a wristband for people who are cases and also a red code. And then separately, a yellow code for arriving travellers, which in, initially it seemed like it might replace the on-arrival quarantine. So when you land in Hong Kong, uh, you might get a yellow code for seven days. So you have to stay mostly at home, but you can go out. You just can't go to, to places that need a green code. But now I, I suspect the most recent news is that that might be plus seven. So it might be seven days of hotel quarantine and then another seven days with a yellow code where you can't go out and about too much. So that's actually a more stringent measure than, than we've had in the past. But it's said to be based on the mainland system and Macau system. They have green. Yeah, they have green. They're green, yellow and red. And so it, 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 there's various ways that you can turn yellow or red and you can you can get yourself back to green by doing a PCR test and, and testing negative in, in the mainland and in Macau. And sometimes it requires regular testing in Macau. They were turning everyone yellow every day. So you had to go and get tested or every, every two days. So you had to keep going to get tested. Otherwise, your yellow coat sticks and then you're in you're in trouble. You can't go to work. You can't go to school, whatever. In Hong Kong, the, the, the most recent, I think yesterday, uh, Regina Ip, the, the convener of Exco, was talking about the expansion of the yellow code to other groups of people, like people under CTNs. I don't know how the government would know who's under a CTN because usually it's, it's a nebulous thing. You know, everyone living in block A of this building, everyone living in, in this particular area was under a CTN. But they don't know who it is, so they can't turn people's code yellow unless there's a way to kind of force people to, to maybe to, to, to admit to living there admit that you know agree to having a yellow code and then going to get tested and so on i don't know how it would actually work operationally and then and you it's only the absence of red and the absence of yellow that mean your equivalent of green right 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 i mean i suppose this would all be ironed out when when they do introduce the new thing and they talk about what what it is but uh, i i think the usage in hong kong is somewhat different to to in the mainland and in macau so i, I don't think we should we should look directly to the mainland experience to figure out what, how it's going to be used in Hong Kong. Right. And apart from uh, looking at ways to boost elderly inoculation rates, uh, the government is also looking at uh, COVID vaccines for kids under the age of three or, or basically toddlers. Um, do, you, do, do you have any idea how, how safe the Sinovac is and the BioNTech vaccines are for um, children as young as, uh, I mean, younger than three? I think we're waiting for data to be published on this age group, under threes. Um, that there is a little bit of data, but not much yet. I don't think there's any reason to be concerned because the vaccines are used in older children without any problem at all, uh, in, in five to 11 year olds. So going, going younger, I, I don't think there'll be a, any major concerns. Um, the, maybe one issue would be the dosage. What's the dosage for Sinovac and what's the dosage for BioNTech? And we have a specific issue with BioNTech 
Because if you're aware, there's two formulations of BioNTech around the world. There's an adult formulation, which we have here in Hong Kong, and there's a newer pediatric formulation for 5 to 11-year-olds, which is more stable at room temperature for longer. And it's used in other parts of the world. It's not used in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, we dilute the adult dose for 5 to 11-year-olds. We take a one-third dose. So a, a vial of, of five doses for adults becomes a vial of 15 doses for children. But the, the very uh, young person dose, so the, 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 uh, the, the dose for children below the age of three for BioNTech, I think is one-tenth of the dose. So a vial of five would become 50 infant doses, which is, is actually very difficult to draw operationally. And so we might need to, to, to import the pediatric version of BioNTech, which is not approved in Hong Kong at present. I don't know why. It's not approved. We only have the adult version approved. So that would require some regulatory changes to get that into Hong Kong if the supply is there and then it might be possible to use it for, for the youngest children. All right, uh, let's uh, now bring in Ivan Hong. He's uh, a government pandemic advisor. Good morning, Professor Hong. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Uh, just now we're talking about uh, um, the possible uh, introduction of vaccination, of COVID vaccination for toddlers or, or kids under the age of three. Um, Professor Hong, does it look likely that uh, Sinovac and BioNTech will be made available for kids that young very soon? Well, I believe so, and I think it's very important uh, for the children, especially very young children, to get vaccinated. Um, and I believe that the uh, Joint Scientific Committee will be discussing that in the coming meeting. So um, once the, we get the approval from the, uh, scientific, the Joint Scientific Committee, then I'm sure that will be uh, proposed to the uh, Vaccine Advisory Committee, and then, of course, uh, to the government uh, so that, you know, we could uh, go on and hopefully start procuring for uh, these uh, vaccines. Uh, of course, uh, as, as Professor Carling said, the problem is uh, whether we could get hold of these uh, vaccines, especially with the BioNTech vaccine, uh, that is very, that's the shortage of these uh, formula, especially for the, for the toddlers. Uh, Professor Hong, good morning. Um, the rest of the world by and large, is moving in the direction of easing up and making things uh, voluntary, like uh, mask wearing out of doors and so on. We seem to be moving in the opposite direction. Is that a fair description? Well, I, I, I don't think so. I think it's, it's the government is now trying to balance things out uh, in having a, you know, what's the safest way in relaxing uh, you know, the uh, certain measures as well as uh, hopefully gain control on, you know, in, in those who are infected. Right. So I think government is now trying to balance things out. Uh, and, and of course, with the, hopefully, with the, you know, the red and amber code uh, in place, and then of course that they could uh, uh, put that on in, uh, for, you know, incoming travelers. Uh, then we will be able to relax the, uh, you know, the, uh, the so-called quarantine in the hotels. Yes, I, uh, specifically on that point, for a returning Hong Kong resident, say they've been to uh, Europe or they've been to North America or even elsewhere in Asia, they come back and test negative um, at the airport or, uh, or before they get the flight as well, why can't they quarantine at home? Yes, I think... Um Eventually, we will be able to do that. But before doing so, I think they would uh, want to monitor this right, the situation right now, as that there are cases or there are, you know, uh, subjects who are actually, uh, you know, 
coming back in and on day three or day four during the quarantine they are detected to be carrying uh, the virus uh, and then of course that the, the uh, you know what they are worrying about is of course the uh, BA5 which is now surging up in many parts of the world so uh, I think they are trying to monitor the situation and try not to opening up too quickly so they would do be the government will be likely to imposing some policy in between that means that they will have the, the red and amber code and then they will have likely a like five plus two or four plus three kind of uh, quarantine method. All right, Professor Hung, I have an email here. I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer his question. It's uh, from Phil. He says, uh, Dear Backchat, um, I would like to consider discussing this the present immigration policy regarding Hong Kong permanent ID card holders. COVID is now with us for over two years and many overseas permanent ID card holders have been delaying their return due to the severe quarantine restrictions. Will the immigration policy affecting those who must return to retain their permanent status be flexible as you are really forcing residents to return and face quarantine? And uh, that email is from Phil. Um, do, you, do you have any response to that, uh, Professor Hong? <laughs> it's a bit difficult for me to answer. So I think really have to ask the immigration department. But I, I believe that they will have some, uh, you know, policy to uh, to help people who are unable to come back in uh, to renew their uh, ID card. Uh, I don't think that would be a problem for them to, you know, to, to get hold of the of the ID card. Uh, you know, maybe just a few months or a year later. All right. And, right. and just uh, looking at the current COVID situation, uh, the number of infections are uh, they're increasing, but it's not at a rapid rate. Hospitalization is going up, but the number of ICU cases are going down. Uh, what's your assessment, Professor Hong? Well, uh, from our recent weeks, uh, just say like in, in you know, Queen Mary Hospital, uh, the, we have a, an increased number of cases of COVID, uh, which have doubled over the last month or so. Uh, however, the number of so-called severe cases uh, who required, uh, you know, uh, oxygen three liters or above, or who required a uh, supportive ventilation, uh, remains the same. So we have like a few cases of so-called severe case, uh, and we have one or two patients in the ICU. So that has been remained quite static, uh, and I think similar situation in other hospital clusters as well. So. Overall, I think there's an increased number of uh, newly diagnosed COVID, uh, but the so-called severe cases remain pretty static. Uh, so I believe that overall, I think the, the so-called hybrid immunity uh, with people who have been vaccinated together, they have been uh, infected, especially uh, during the fifth wave, likely to be you know, more than two-thirds of the population been infected. Uh, that actually plays a very important role in cross-protecting against the BA the BA5 or the BA2. Professor. So hopefully I think that will remain quite stable and not too, putting too much pressure uh, on the hospital authority. All right. Professor Cowling, what do you think, uh, what, can, what can we expect in the uh, coming week or two? Well, I think Professor Hung's right that there's really a very low risk at the moment of, of severe COVID. There's a lot of mild infections. There's very, very few severe cases in the, in the next couple of weeks. I would imagine the case numbers will creep up a bit further. I think fairly soon we will see a peak. And the reason I think that we'll see a peak fairly soon is because we haven't seen dramatic rises in incidence of BA4, BA5, despite them being in the community, meaning that uh, we must have a lot of cross-immunity, as, as, as Professor Hung said. 
And separately, I mean, we, we know that so many people have been infected in the fifth wave that there's not many people left who, who could still be vulnerable to infection. So most likely this wave will subside and then we'll have a question. I mean, if, if that was the worst that COVID can do, why do we have so many measures in place? I mean, why are we, why are we having hotel quarantine for arrivals to keep BA5 out when it's already here anyway? Uh, for the next variant, I don't think it will, it will be able to keep it out for long either. Why are we having so many restrictions domestically? Why are schools still restricted? Why are restaurants still restricted? Uh, why are workplaces still restricted? When even when COVID spreading as much as it wants, we haven't stopped it from spreading, uh, is not doing much damage anymore. So I, I think we have to look carefully at the, the costs and the benefits of the public health measures we have in place. Professor Hill? Uh, absolutely. Uh, and um, I think that, uh, you know, we have to monitor the situation over the next month or so. And hopefully, it, um, you know, as Professor Carling said, you know, it will be plateaued over the next month or so. And then uh, it will hopefully this way will be over. Uh, and then, of course, the, the government will have to look at this policy again and, and you know, whether we could, uh, you know, relax further. Right. Uh, and hopefully, you know, before November, they will be able to do so. Uh, and of course, then we will have to look for, you know, look uh, into what happens in uh, in the coming winter uh, when there's, of course, influenza as well as COVID. Uh, that is something that you know we worry about. Professor Hong, Singapore seems to bounce along quite comfortably with ten thousand new cases a day, and we're getting not quite, maybe not hysterical as over, overstating it. We, we seem to be just very worried that we've been three days in a row over 4,000. What, what explains this difference in approach? Well, I, I think it's that the overall... Uh, we're different from Singapore in that, you know, um, we have uh, more elderly people who have not been fully vaccinated. Uh, and that, of course, uh, we not only have an international border, we also have a border with, with mainland China. So it's something that we have to be very careful, and that's why we have a policy sort of in between, rather than going more with, you know, taking off of all the infection control measures. So I think hopefully with the, you know, the current wave plateauing and over in a month time, then it will be the time to reconsider our current uh, infection control policy. I just want to clarify one more thing. I'm not really sure if I misheard you, uh, Professor Hung. Did you say uh, that if we are going to relax uh, measures further, we'll, we'll, be, uh, we'll have to wait until November? No, no, no. Uh, what I'm saying is that, you know, uh, hopefully that, you know, uh, when this wave is over, then, you know, we could hopefully further relax our infection control measures. Uh, and then, of course, uh, that hopefully will be done before November, when, of course, there will be uh, two... Uh, you know, major conference meeting in Hong Kong uh, on economy as well as the uh, the rugby seven as well. All right, and uh, Mike, did no, you? No, want... I'm aware that within the government there are a lot of things that people would like to do round about late October, early November. Uh, Professor Hong mentioned the rugby sevens. There's talk of this big financial conference. There's the Hong Kong Marathon, there's the uh, Trail Walker event, the Snooker World Championship was pushed back from August to late October. There seems to be a lot of focus on late October, November for things to happen. And I'm just wondering, with our present set of controls, whether people are going to come. 
Also, you need a lead time, right? You can't just say, oh, and, you know, in, in, next month we're going to have all these things. That's, you need months that's of, of preparation. That's a specific point with respect to the Rugby Sevens. In all, they need a decision this week hmm. and whether it can go ahead or not. All right. Okay. Um, Professor Hong and uh, Professor Cowling, and we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us uh, this morning. Um, that's uh, Professor Ivan Hong, a government pandemic advisor. And uh, also many thanks to uh, Professor Benjamin Cowling, the head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health. It's now 20 minutes past nine, and it's time for us to turn to our next topic, and it's about wild pigeons. I don't know about you, Mike, but uh, they're not my favorite kind of animal. And uh, I actually don't know many people who like pigeons very much. Um, maybe that's why that's partly why the DAB party is calling for a citywide ban on the feeding of wild pigeons. Um, let's find out more from the party's vice chairman, Holden Chow. Good morning, Mr. Chow. Morning, morning. Thank thanks, you. Thanks for joining morning. us on the program. Um, yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. So, Mr. Yeah. Chow, why is the DAB calling for a citywide ban on the feeding of wild pigeons now? Uh, well, you know... If there are a lot of pigeons going around many places, that can actually leave kind of nuisance to the general public, which we have observed for a long time uh, in many different places in Hong Kong, especially in Yunlong and Tianmen. Uh, we have seen a lot of pigeons. The reason that they are there is because uh, people start feeding uh, the wild pigeons. Uh, they, they, they actually attract the pigeons to be there and that actually left us a lot of problem the hygiene problem they left the feces that actually caused people to contract some illness too so that is something serious and uh, in the past we believe and we observed the government has not doing enough in the enforcement even if you if somebody get caught of uh, feeding the wild pigeon it's only like a thousand and five hundred dollars on penalty Oh, hold on, I see a lot of pigeons yeah. uh, in Happy Valley uh, yeah. at the at junction of Leighton Road and so on un, under a big tree there. Yeah. People, yeah. I, don't, I don't see people feeding them. There just seems to be a lot of food in the urban area that pigeons can grab, find for well, themselves. Well, well, well you, you see, uh, of course, there could be uh, other reasons for pigeons to be there, of course, the hygiene, the food lab there could be a problem. Then, of course, the government need to do something about cleaning the places. But um, major reason is, of course, we have observed that there are people who who try to beat the wild pigeon, and that becomes a habit. And when that becomes a habit, then actually that attracts a lot more pigeons going there, and that causes a lot of problems. And so that's why I'm, what we are asking now, the government, is because there's a chance that uh, right now, you see that the government is considering to amend the law uh, to impose heavier penalties on feeding wild pigs. But at the same time, I think if they amend the law this time round, why don't they include uh, the offense of uh, feeding the wild pigeons there so that can actually impose heavier penalties? Right. As I pointed out earlier, uh, uh, you know, when the people get caught of feeding the wild pigeon, it only costs them like a thousand dollars and something, something like that. And that's not enough to deter people from doing so. Mm -hmm. So we are asking the government right now uh, to consider amending the law to impose heavier penalties so that people would be deterred from doing so.
um, you see, I've received a lot of feedback from uh, Yunnong uh, residents uh, that um, um, they suffer the pain of the pigeons going there and leaving a lot of pieces, and and that, as I said, cause hygiene problem. Uh, and more important, that could be causing illness because we've mm-hmm. seen cases that uh, people contract illness because of that. So that's why we need to ask the government to do something about it. This, yeah. this whole area, we don't. I, I know there's been a problem with with the monkeys, as well, in, in certain places along the the, the walks where people like to walk. Monkeys are a serious problem. We've had it for years. We've never really solved that, and now wild pigs have become a problem because they're increasingly coming into the urban area. We need a mindset change uh, in the government or among the public or both. Well, I think we need. Uh where the, the, the mindset, everybody needs to have a good mindset on, you know, we love the animals, but at the same time, if we beat the wild animals and that becomes a nuisance or problem for any others, that's not good, isn't it? Uh, I think the government needs to educate the people about the issue on that too. Because, you know, um, when we do something about the wild pigs, because the wild pigs go to urban area and people, there are people still keep feeding the wild pig and that's why they go out to the urban area and that cause nuisance. And in the same vein, I think uh, the wild pigeon is the same issue because there are people who, uh, who has a habit to feed these wild pigeons and that's why they cause a problem. So I think uh, we do need to do some more education on that, too. I would agree on that. We need to do some more education on that, yeah. And you talked about the uh, problem in Yunlong and Chun Moon. Um, has this uh, wild pigeon problem worsened uh, during the pandemic? Uh, well, yes, indeed. Because um, even, you know, um, for, the, 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 for, for people who uh, care about the hygiene, of course, you know, when we have the pandemic, uh, we are especially uh, cautious. We are more cautious about the hygiene problem. But the wild pigeon problem exists and, and, and is there even over the whole two or three years period of time when we have the pandemic. Uh, we also have the wild, these wild pigeon issues. And when people are getting more cautious about the hygiene and their uh, health issues and that, I think that's really the time for government to do something about it. Yeah. There's a big enforcement issue here, isn't there? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's something to do with the enforcement too, because uh, in the past, uh, I think the government uh, hasn't got enough enforcement uh, to do something about it. Uh, in the past, I have some experience in dealing with this sort of issue in in uh, a small neighborhood. Uh, um, uh, I used to be a district council. So I used to have some experience in uh, urging the government to do something about it. Uh, I think the government do education, and at the same time, they need to have more manpower uh, to carry on with enforcement, to step up the enforcement. Uh, and also, they could consider putting up some banner with some clear slogans, asking people not to feed the wild pigeons. Uh, that actually works, according to my own experience too, mm. in the past. So I think this is some sort of um, all sort of tools and measures to be used to tackle this uh, right. uh, wild pigeon problem. Because I mean, you talked about the penalties. Um, yeah. So if if feeding something was a thousand dollar penalty and yeah. it's raised to ten thousand, that might be a bigger deterrent effect. 
But if yeah. if you were being prosecuted every day for feeding monkeys or pigeons or whatever, yeah, yeah. that that would that would certainly mount up. That would be a deterrent as well. It's, it's got to be enforced, otherwise it just becomes a joke. Uh, well, uh, I think I would agree on a point that uh, you, when on one hand you raise the penalty, you impose heavier penalty. That's uh, some sort of way to deter people from doing that. But at the same time, there should be more enforcement uh, in this connection too. I agree. Uh, if you have more, if you have amended the law to impose heavier penalties, you must have, uh, you must be equipped with more manpower to do the enforcement. So that's why when we held the press conference uh, last week, we also emphasized the importance of the manpower to carry on with the enforcement. Yeah. What's the action been from the government so far? Uh, well, we asked the we urged the government to do that. They said they are considering that and. Uh, I think their response is kind of positive, but I think we, uh, going forward, we will keep uh, following up with this issue with the government. Yeah. All right, uh, Mr. Chow, we're out of time. Thanks again for joining us this morning. And that's uh, Holden Chow, the vice chairman of the DAB party. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed. And, uh, of course, uh, to my co-host, Mike Rouse, and my producer, Christy. Now here's 36 the... again, right? Yes, 36. <laughs> Now, here's the weather. It will be mainly fine. The very hot weather warning is in force highs today, expected of around 36 degrees in the urban areas and a, number, and a couple of degrees higher in the new territories. Winds are light to moderate southwesterlies. Right now, the temperature reading at the observatory is 31 degrees, relative humidity 76%. The Electoral Affairs Commission has published proposed guidelines on election-related activities in respect of the rural representative election for public consultation. Submit written views by August 9th. The proposed guidelines can be viewed at www.eac.hk, the Registration and Electoral Office, and Home Affairs Inquiry Centers. For inquiries, please call 2891-1001. It's 9.30, the news with Andrew Shirovsky. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, head of an education concern group says he backs short-term measures to deal with the shrinking student population, noting that tens of thousands of cross-border students could return when the pandemic situation stabilizes. Reverend Jung from the Hong Kong Education Policy Concern Organization says officials should use the opportunity to introduce small class teaching. The government says it's going to trial an upgraded electronic health declaration system